All right, today's text comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 46. Now, 18 to 46, that's a lot of verses, so I'm going to spare you a prologue that's intended to get your interest and say God's Word is interesting enough. Let's get to it. So Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 18, says this. In the morning as he, that being Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this is kind of a weird scene, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, best, best you can tell, especially if you haven't been, been tracking with us uh, up to this point, and you just drop in in your morning Bible study to Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 18, it kind of seems like Jesus has gotten hangry, he says that he's hungry, he goes to this tree, there's nothing on it. Seems like he's had what we call that, that modern phenomenon of hanger, and so he uses his divine authority to wither up this fig tree because he couldn't get from it what he wanted. In a given moment, this passage could certainly be read in such a way as to make Jesus appear capricious, erratic, and emotionally impulsive, couldn't it? Okay, yeah. In fact, we may be even drawn to reading that text that way because it would make us feel better about when we do stuff like that, wouldn't it? Look, even Jesus in his humanity wasn't impervious to things like hanger. Right? It happens to me. Sometimes I fly off the handle for those reasons, and I'm a little bit self-indulgent in my use of power and authority. But Matthew chapter 21, verse 18 says that those things happen to Jesus too, so it can't be that bad. We may even have a vested interest in trying to see that in the text. But of course, that's wildly inconsistent with Jesus' use of power all throughout Matthew's gospel. That's not how Jesus uses miracle-working authority from heaven to self-indulgently throw temper tantrums and do the equivalent for, for us of punching through the drywall or something. He just does it in a more miraculous way. That's clearly not the way that Jesus uses power and authority vested in him. Rather, how does Jesus use his power throughout Matthew's gospel? Well, he uses it to heal and he uses it to cleanse. He uses it to make things whole and to bring righteousness. That's how Jesus uses his power, not to satisfy his emotional whims because he's a little bit moody. That's not Jesus. If he's touching the divine nature in order to work a miracle, it's to heal, make whole, cleanse, and bring righteousness, not to indulge in internal desire for catharsis by giving into an outburst. That's not who Jesus is. That's not what Jesus does because he's not us. Again, we may be tempted to read the passage that way to make us feel better about our emotional outbursts, but that is beyond the pale. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, and Jesus was perfectly submitted to the Spirit. Therefore, there's not a hint of him lacking self-control in anything that we read of his life. So then we're left with the question, why is this happening? What's going on, and what does this mean? 
Well, Jesus is giving them a miraculous object lesson that is, in fact, aimed at restoration, repentance, and righteousness. That's what this is. It's a miraculous object lesson. And as always, our Old Testament is going to help us unlock the meaning of the episode that we're reading here in Matthew chapter 21. You see, in the Old Testament, fig trees were used to represent Israel in a number of important passages. Hosea chapter 9, Jeremiah chapter 8, Jeremiah 24, Joel chapter 1, others that we could cite. I'll just read one of them for you as a representative sample. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 13 says this, When I, speaking of Yahweh, would gather them, speaking of Israel, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine when I gather them. There are no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. You hear that? Here's an Old Testament passage of a prophet who is foretelling judgment on Israel. And he's talking about why that judgment is going to come. And it's because when the Lord goes and to, to reap the harvest from his people, no figs on the fig tree, and even the leaves are withered. And so now we see what Jesus' miracle is intended to communicate, don't we? This isn't a novelty. Rather, what he's doing is he's employing one of the judgment symbols for Israel, that being a figless fig tree with withered leaves, and he's laying it out right in front of their eyes. Here's a divine object lesson. Let me bring the Word of God to life. And isn't that what the incarnate Word would do? Isn't that precisely what we would expect Him to do? Who's the Word of God? The Lord Jesus is the Word of God. So now all of those words from Jeremiah are being enfleshed and embodied. You, know that? you remember that from Jeremiah chapter 8? There it is. In the flesh. So you can see it, touch it, smell it. See that? He makes all of these things real and alive because he is the very word of God. And so we see what Jesus' miracle here is intended to communicate to them. It's a harbinger of the judgment that is coming on that generation of Jews. The judgment on this tree is representative of the judgment that's going to come on Israel for their fruitlessness. In the Old Testament, fig trees were also used as a sign of abundance in Israel during times of God's blessing. That's something that's also a consistent theme. During the reign of Solomon, the author of 1 Kings points out that every man had his own vine and fig tree. That was the way of encapsulating the absolute abundance that existed in the nation at the time because of God's wonderful blessing. And that's why the prophets then pick up the language of fruitless fig trees and withered fig trees because it's the antithesis of the way that they communicated about abundance. And so the prophets had created this motif as inspired by the Holy Spirit that when they're talking about fig trees, they're talking about Israel, either her abundance and blessedness of God or their soon judgment from him. So this isn't a random act of caprice by our Lord wherein for just a moment while he's enduring the stress of entering the city and knowing what's coming and knowing that he's moving towards his death, he just cracks for a moment and gives in to this sort of self-indulgent outburst and he takes it out on a tree in the way that you might 
yell at your kids or kick the dog. That's decidedly not what is happening. This is not random. This is an Old Testament passage come to life because the word of God is enfleshing that very word and playing it out for the understanding of his disciples. So we may be good to follow that thread from the Old Testament on the fig tree, maybe can pick that up, can, can see that. But what about verses 20 through 22? When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you ask in faith. Now, this is an absolutely tortured passage of Scripture, isn't it? An absolutely tortured text, particularly verse 22. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So, are you sick? Does your mom have cancer? Is your child at death's door? Well, why? Why are you still sick? Why does your mom still have cancer? Why did your child die? Haven't you read Matthew chapter 21, verse 22? Anything that you ask is yours. You just didn't have enough faith. Whose fault is every tragedy in your life then? No, it's, it's not because God is sovereign, sitting in the heavens doing all that he pleases, such that you and I can rest, that he does all things, and that he does all things well for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. No, 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 no. Get that nonsense out of here. God's not sovereign. You are. You just didn't conjure up enough faith when you asked. It's your fault. You didn't have enough faith when you prayed for healing. It's your fault you're sick. It's your fault your mom's got cancer. It's your fault your child's dead. God's not sovereign. You are. This is a damnable teaching of the Pentecostal church that needs to burn in hell where it came from. You've all heard it though, haven't you? You've all heard that. And these are the people who supposedly have the deepest connection with the Holy Spirit who authored the text that they're teaching so poorly. This text gets ripped violently from its context and is therefore monstrously misunderstood and monstrously applied. When modern preachers get a handle on this text and they craft sermons using it, you know what they do with the mountain. They generalize the mountain, don't they? The mountain is taken to mean any obstacle in your life that you think ought to be removed. And therefore, the prayer of faith is taken to be a prayer of faith for the removal of any such generic mountain or obstacle that you may have in your life. But this text has a context, and this mountain is a specific mountain. Jesus says that with faith, the disciples can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. You know, he says this mountain, not generic mountain. Not any obstacle in your life. It, it, it has a context. This is why I, I love Alistair Begg. He says that, that preaching must first be pedagogical before it can be hortatory. 
And what he means by that is you have to understand what the text means before you can ever say what you're supposed to do about it in the application to your life. Because if you will not do the work to actually understand what the text means, then your application of said text to your life is going to be horrible and likely destructive, as in the example that I just gave about what Pentecostals say this text means. That will do nothing except make you despairing and despondent. You must first do the work of understanding the passage before you rush to try to make some sort of an application of it. This text has a context. Jesus says that you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. Not any mountain, not every mountain, not generic mountains, not fill in the blank with whatever your situation and circumstance is and pretend that that's the mountain under consideration in Jesus' teaching. He says this mountain. So the diligent student of Scripture must ask, which mountain is this mountain? Which mountain is this mountain? And you know which mountain it is. It's the Temple Mount. That's the mountain to which he's referring. The mountain upon which the Old Covenant Temple is sitting. That's the this mountain of Matthew 21. It's the mountain that typifies and symbolizes Israel's cultists of worship. The temple with its sacrifices, priesthood, washings, and rituals. That's the this mountain that is under consideration. Jesus says that the faith of the twelve apostles will cast that mountain into the sea. The faith of the twelve apostles is going to cast that mountain, that temple mount, into the sea. Now, what does the sea represent in the Old Testament? We've talked about this before. What's the sea represent in the Old, in the Old Testament? Well, the nations, the Gentile nations. It's what the sea represents all through the Old Testament. The sea is associated with the Gentile nations, while the land is always associated with whom? Israel. Israel. But now, Israel's mountain is about to be cast into the Gentile sea by the faith and prayer of the apostles. That's what this text is teaching. That's what this text is teaching. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know that's exactly what happens, isn't it? That's precisely what happens all through the book of Acts. The priesthood is expanded. And who becomes priests? Loads and loads of Gentiles. What is that except the temple being cast into the sea? You see the idea? Everyone who trusts in Messiah and receives his spirit becomes a priest who offers living sacrifices to our God. Who is the very temple in which all of these things are occurring? Myriads of myriads of Gentiles made Jews in their second birth by the Spirit of the living God. That's the mountain that's cast into the sea. And that mountain was, by God's grace, thrown into the sea. And you and I are the beneficiaries of that miraculous act, which happened on the backs of the faith and prayer of the apostles. You, in fact... And I are the evidence that this has happened. This passage does not mean that every problem in your life can be thrown out of your way. That is decidedly not what this text 
is teaching. The passage means that the kingdom of heaven is now populated overwhelmingly by Gentiles who were once cut off from the people of God and from covenant with him, but now those who were far off have been brought near because the mountain has been thrown into the sea. That's what this text is teaching. Let's look at verse 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, this is hilarious, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Obviously, he sees through their answer. He says, then I'm not going to tell you either. <laughs> he knows that they're just not answering the, que the question. Now, two quick notes here. One, Jesus enters the temple in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, and he will not exit the temple until Matthew 24, verse 1, at which point he's going to foretell the destruction of that temple. And so I want you to be paying attention from this point through Matthew 24, and the temple context, because this is going to be something that becomes incredibly meaningful in interpreting the rest of the book of Matthew. So wanted to make that note. Second thing to note here is that Jesus is talking to the chief priests and elders, and he's confronting them. And as we'll see, he's even antagonizing them. The reason I draw attention to that is because this tells us how brave the Lord Jesus really is, how fearless he is. What a man he is. And the reason that I say that is because what has Jesus been predicting was going to happen to him when he came to Jerusalem and was talking to the very people to whom he's speaking in this passage? You remember Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19? See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He knows how this ends. And he knows at whose hands his end will come. And yet here he stands, fearless, courageous, walking directly into the death that he knows his father has called him into, not shrinking back from it for a moment. This is a fearless Lord Jesus in this text. So the chief priests and the elders of the people try to trap Jesus with a question about the source of his authority. And anytime somebody's doing something we don't like, that's where we go, isn't it? <laughs> somebody's doing something you don't like, saying something you don't like, putting something forward that you don't like. Uh, are you sure you're allowed to do that? Can you show me your credentials, please? 
They're saying effectively, Jesus, you came into Jerusalem receiving praise as a king, and then you come into the temple with violence and condemnation like a prophet. But we're the recognized authority in this city and in this temple, and we did not authorize you to do any of those things. So tell us, please, by what authority are you doing these things? You see, what they're doing is they're they're painting Jesus as the one who's the radical, who's the rabble-rouser, who's the one who's outside of God's hierarchical plan and the one who's actually beyond the pale. That, that's what he's doing. It's sort of akin to what happened in 2020 during all of the mask nonsense and gubernatorial orders. And then there was that small group of people who were like, there's this old document I found called a constitution that says you can't do any of this. And yet, who was painted as the radicals? All the people who said, you guys are actually the ones who are out of bounds by annexing power unto yourselves that none of our founding documents actually give us. But who looked crazy? Who looked radical? And how well did that plan work? Very well. That's what they're doing to the Lord Jesus here. He's the one who's actually rightly submitted to the Father and is actually bringing God's law to bear, and yet they're the ones who are painting him like he's out of bounds. What's just happening in this text? They're seeking to marginalize the Lord Jesus and paint him as the one who's overstepping his bounds. But Jesus turns it on them, as we would expect, and he does it masterfully. He says, before I answer your question, answer me a question about John the Baptist. Was his ministry from heaven, or was that just a man-made product? As this text tells us, they were afraid to say what they actually believed because their desire for political influence far outweighed any of their theological convictions. And so what did they do? They retreated to antagonism, or, or excuse me, they, they retreated to agnosticism. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. You see, they're pragmatists with no principles. We've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen this actually in our leaders pretty frequently. Right? I, I don't actually have any convictions I'm willing to stand behind, so when you ask me a straightforward question that I actually do know the answer to and have a strong opinion about, I'm going to pretend that I don't know the answer and I don't have a strong opinion because if I say what I'm really thinking, it'll offend people who I'm trying to continue to maintain influence over. And so I'm just going to say something like, well, I'm not a biologist, so I couldn't even actually be qualified to answer such a question. Really couldn't tell you. And it's got the, the extra benefit of them seeming like they're, like they're humble and teachable, right? Oh, I mean, I, look, I, haven't even, I didn't even study that in college. I, gotta, I don't know that I can say. It's above my pay grade. Why don't we let the experts answer the questions like that? This is an age-old trick used by those who care more about their influence than they do about the truth. And so they find a way to make simple questions seem hard to answer so that they can avoid giving offense to those that they want to maintain the support of. Let's look now at verse 28. Jesus speaking. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward... He changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, 
Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not go afterward and change your minds and believe him. Now Jesus goes on an aggressive offense, exposing the religious leaders of his day, again knowing that he'll be killed for it. He tells this parable about a vineyard. Now he's talking to religious scholars and to the leaders of a hyper-religious people group who built everything in their society upon their religion. And so when he brings up a vineyard, they don't hear it as a random illustration. Because it isn't a random illustration. In the Old Testament, Israel was often pictured as a vineyard. We talked about this a, a couple weeks ago, but Isaiah 5-7 just explicitly says that Israel is the vineyard of God. And so when, in the temple, talking to those who have charge of the temple, Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a vineyard. Everybody knows what's happening. Everybody knows who he's talking about. There's nothing random about this illustration in the same way that there was nothing random about using a fig tree to give them an object lesson earlier. All of this is him saying, hey, you're in this covenant with the Lord or, or, or with Yahweh, and I'm going to use the language of the covenant and the images of the covenant to make points to you about what that covenant's about to bring down on your heads. That's what he's doing. So they know where Jesus is taking this, and they know who he is addressing. These leaders have been commissioned by God to work his vineyard, that is to serve his people. And so they know that Jesus is talking about them. But Jesus also hasn't left his question about John. He posed the question about John's ministry because John, John's ministry can't be separated from Jesus' ministry because John is the forerunner who's preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. So he isn't letting them get away with their non-answer. He's going to force that answer out of them one way or another. Was John's ministry from heaven or was it from man? He's not left that. He tells this parable in which both sons are partially obedient. Partially. Each of them has an aspect of obedience. One is disobedient in posture and speech toward his father. He says, I will not go to the vineyard. Later, he feels bad about it, realizes the egregious act of disrespect and shame that he's just committed, and he goes into the vineyard and gets to work. The other son is obedient in posture and speech, says the right thing in the moment, and then totally disregards and doesn't actually do the will of his father. But then... He answers his own question, again, the one posed to the leaders. Was John's baptism from heaven or from man? You see, in verse 32, Jesus says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is Jesus affirming that John and his ministry and his baptism were, in fact, from heaven. He's, he's answering the question. It was from heaven, and he's telling these leaders that they knew that it was from heaven, and, he refused, and they refused it anyway. So he's telling them. By telling this parable, he's saying, you don't even have partial obedience to put on your record. That's what he's saying. The virtue that both of these sons had was that they were at least partially obedient. And he's saying, they didn't even have that. They didn't even have that. They've got 
all of the vices and none of the virtues. They rejected John, who spoke with the voice of the Father, and even after they saw the evidence of his ministry in the transformed lives of tax collectors and sinners, they still wouldn't change their minds and join John's work in the vineyard. Which again is to say they have both of the brothers' vices and neither of their virtues. They neither received the Father's voice warmly and then rebelled later, nor did they dismiss the Father's voice initially and then repent later on. They got neither thing right. It was utter rejection from start to finish. That's his point in telling this parable. And before they can even recover or respond, Jesus fires another round. Verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jeremiah 7 is in the background here as it was in the background of last week's text. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 25 talks about God sending prophet after prophet after prophet to speak to his people, calling them to repentance. But their response to those gracious calls from the prophets to repent was in fact to add to their sins. Add the sin of ignoring and brutalizing the very messengers of God and in many cases even going so far as to kill them. There's example after example after example of this, but I'll read you one representative text from 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, said persistently to them by his messengers, the prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of God rose against his people Listen to this, until there was no remedy. It's absolutely terrifying. Until there was no remedy. In God's compassion and love for his people, he continues to send his word. Prophet after prophet, pastor after pastor, sermon after sermon, lifeline after lifeline. But hear this, you can only reject the word of God for so long before there's no other remedy than your destruction. At some point, you have so seared your conscience that you are past the point of no return. And God says, the only thing left for me to do is to unleash my fury on you forever. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Now Jesus applies the parable in verse 42. It tells them exactly what he means by it. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. (laughs) And although they were seeking to arrest him, as if that was going to do anything, They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. In verse 20, or or excuse me, in verse 42, Jesus quotes a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, to connect it to the parable that he had just told. The rejected, despised, murdered son from the parable is the rejected Messiah of Psalm 118. And as Jesus goes on to make plain, Those chief priests and elders are the tenants who will be put to a miserable end. They will lose their position and they will be replaced with others. The next two chapters are about that miserable end that the Lord Jesus is going to see to for that generation of ungodly Israelite rulers. The vineyard was taken away from them and it was given to others. And it was in this form. It was in the form of the mountain being thrown into the sea. It was taken away from them, thrown into the sea. And a rush of Gentiles come in to have those privileges that were previously reserved for the Jews alone. The land is covered with water. This text is about the coming judgment on Old Covenant Israel for the murder of the Son of God and for the rejection of their final prophet. We dare not rip this passage from its context and make it about something else because, as I hopefully illustrated, the damage that can be done when we do so But it does leave a question. What then is the relevance of this passage to us? We do have to ask that question, right? We don't take the Word of God to simply be a history book. We take it to be the living and active Word of God that cuts and pierces and does all that He wants to do in His people, not only then, but now. And so, while we must be familiar with what these things meant to the original audience in their time, in their place, We still must orient ourselves here and now, and so we must ask the question as faithful Bible believers, what do I do about it? What's this got to do with me? Well, this is a parable about the people of God abusing the privileges and graces of God. This parable is about the people of God abusing the privileges and graces of God and using those privileges and graces to sin against the one who generously bestowed those things on them in the first place. Is it relevant enough now? I was once working with a couple whose marriage was on the rocks several years ago. 
Things had grown pretty cold and distant in their marriage, and in large part, it was due to the husband's lack of investment in the household. He wasn't where he should have been, when he should have, should have been. He said yes to all sorts of other things to advance in this and advance in that and left his wife and children kind of defend for themselves. Everything else came first and the family got the cold leftovers in the back of the fridge that nobody's really sure if it's even safe to eat anymore. It was that sort of a situation. But he determined to turn those patterns of his life around and he began to say no to many other things in order to say yes to his duty and calling to his family. And one of the things that he did to kick off this new and fresh commitment to obey the Lord and discharge his duty as the Lord commands was to take off time from work that he was going to spend specifically with his kids and he sent his wife on a little getaway. He said, honey, I'm, I'm sorry. I confess and I repent of these things. I'm going to take the kids and, and rebuild the bridge there. And, and I want you to just have some time. I just want you to have some time. Fast, pray, whatever you need to do. Relax, recharge. Spend some time with your extended family, whatever you want to do. So he gassed up the car, booked a hotel, told her to spare no expense. Little did this husband know that his wife would use this blessing to have an affair with another man. That's what she did. She used his car, his money, his trust, and his generosity to sin against him. That's what she did. She abused his grace, and she broke his heart. And we are just the same. We are just the same. Because every time we sin against God, we're using the blessings that he gave us in order to do it. Every time. That's you. That's me. That's what these religious leaders had done. And that is what we do. But Jesus, we must note, is on his donkey in this conversation. He's not on his war horse. He's on his donkey in this conversation. He's not on his war horse. I, I realize it can sound like it because he's cutting and he's aggressive and he's confrontational. But you remember, violence and peace aren't enemies. They're friends. They're friends. He's on his donkey in this confrontation. He's not on his war horse yet. Jesus is the prophet warning them to flee the wrath to come, telling the truth that they must hear in order to be saved. 2 Chronicles 36, 15 already said it. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion, compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. They kept mocking the messengers, despising the words, scoffing at his prophets. Why is Jesus there confronting them in the first place? Compassion. Compassion. Jesus is pleading with them, don't wait until there's no remedy. Begging, pleading. Sometimes we love to hate the religious leaders without acknowledging that Jesus spends significant time going after them. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. We think about the dour older brother who can't celebrate the return of his profligate younger brother because he can't stand the fact that this wretch is getting the party rather than the penalty that he deserves. We love to hate that guy, don't we? We love to make the older brother the villain in the story. Of course, he is one of the villains in the story, as are the scribes 
And the chief priests, the villain in this story. But what is the Lord Jesus doing in this confrontation with them? He's doing the same thing that the father did in the parable of the prodigal son. What does the father do in the middle of the party that's being thrown for the younger brother? What does he do? He leaves the party and he goes out to find whom? That dour, hard-hearted older brother. And what does he do but entreat him to come and join the party? That's what he does. That's what the Lord Jesus is doing here. He's not cold with a face full of wrath in this confrontation. He is moved with compassion as the final prophet to this people. And he begs with them, says exactly what they need to hear to confront their sin so that they might be saved. Calling to them to repentance and working toward their peace because he's on his donkey, he's not on his war horse. And so it is with us today. As long as there's breath in your lungs and the Lord tarries, he holds out to you and to me the gracious opportunity to turn from our wickedness and fall upon the rock that is Christ before that rock returns to crush us. And so, we've heard the word of God. What will we do in response to it? Will we harden ourselves as these leaders have been doing? Or will we soften our hearts Open our ears. Say, yes, Lord. I'll go and I'll work in your vineyard.